Good morning, everybody. Again. <laughs> so, our VBS kids definitely did. Do I need to hold this mic? Let's just get that out of the way right now. Can y'all hear me okay? Perfect. Awesome. Cool. I don't want to hold a mic anyway. Our VBS kids had a great week learning about the fact that God is good in every single circumstance. You know what? The kids had to shout it all week. I'm going to make the adults do it too. Okay? So, let's say we'll just do the one, okay? When life is scary, God is good. Oh, come on. You're a bunch of adults. Some of you have been saved for a lot, of, a lot of years at this point. Let's shout it out. When life is scary, God is good. Woo, y'all have made the kids jealous. That was awesome. <laughs> but listen, while that was a good lesson for the kids to learn, sometimes it's a lesson that we adults need to remember and be reminded of a lot, right? Because a lot of times, even as adults, life can be hard. And life can be discouraging as adults. Don't raise your hand or shout for this one, but have you ever had a plan that you had set in stone that you thought was really going to happen, and then you became real disappointed with the outcome that you ended up having, or having? Sometimes life can be discouraging, and we need to remember that even when we are discouraged by our circumstances, it doesn't change the goodness that our God has for us. In church, that's exactly what this passage is about. Trust us, we don't expect every single person in here to have read through the book of Zechariah every night before bed, (laughs) okay? These aren't books of the Bible that we normally flock to, right? Even as pastors, this is the first time I've been in ministry for over a decade, and I've never preached from the book of Zechariah. Shame on me, right? (laughs) We always tend to, let's be real, Alex, we go to the easier passages sometimes. Not easier, not Alex. Of course, Alex will preach a whole series on two verses, but that's different. (laughs) But I want to make sure we know what's happening here in the book of Zechariah. And it's actually a really great follow-up to anyone who was here last Sunday. Then this is a great sequel to Alex's sermon. See, what's happening here is the people of Israel had been kicked out of their kingdom for a long time at this point. They had been taken over by Babylon and Assyria, and they were exiled in a foreign land. But now, a new king had taken over and allowed the Israelites to come back and start rebuilding the city, the walls, and the temple. And that's great news, right? That's an encouraging thing. That pumped the Israelites up. They're like, hey, we get to go back and we get to start this work. And we get to go here. You can go to the book of Nehemiah where it's all about him encouraging the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, right? Last time, your sermon was about rebuilding the temple. They were so excited. But then we get to Zechariah. And what's happened is some time has passed, years have passed while these Israelites have been back. And they're getting discouraged because the work is slow. And the main reason it's slow is because they're still being faced with opposition at every side. Everyone knows that these Israelites are coming back and they don't want them to rebuild this city. They now know that the Israelites are the weak group. So they're trying to hold them back. But not only that, the work that they're trying to do is slow. It's hard. Men, was there any point yesterday while you're working out there that you started to get discouraged from the heat stroke you almost had? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so, I said men, men. I wasn't able to be out there with them. I, they have all of my <laughs> thanks and support for that. But it can be discouraging, and that's where the Israelites were at. They were probably asking themselves, is this even worth it? We're not really seeing anything come from this. We're trying to make something good. We're trying to make, rebuild something that was amazing And it's difficult. It's not going the way we've planned. And they're getting discouraged. 
So what does God do? He doesn't leave them in their discouragement. He encourages them. He steps in through a prophet named Zechariah, and he gives him a couple visions that he would have at night. And he speaks to him. Now, I encourage you to go read the rest of the book of Zechariah to see what the rest of these visions are. And it's actually really cool because if you haven't read the book of Zechariah, it's one of the most quoted books from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Right? It points to salvation through Jesus more than almost any other minor prophet. It's really, really cool. I don't have time to go through all of that. So I encourage you to do it. But this is what God does. He steps in, and through these, especially this vision this morning, and encourages them. It reminds me of a great early missionary to India named William Carey. William Carey is one of the very first people to ever take the gospel to the, um, the other part of the world in India. He had a heart for that. And he was even tried to be held back by people. And he was like, no, this is what God wants me to do, and I'm going to do what it takes to get over there. But here's the thing. He had seven full years of ministry in, in India before he saw a single convert. And I love this quote from a letter that he sent back home to his sisters. And listen to what he says about his discouragement and then what he was encouraged by. He said, I feel as a farmer does about his crops. Sometimes I think the seed is springing, and thus I hope. But a little blasts all, and my hopes are gone like a cloud. They were only weeds which appeared. Or if a little corn sprung up, it quickly dies, being either choked with weeds or parched by the sun of persecution. Yet I still hope in God, and will go forth in His strength, and make mention of His righteousness, even of His only. That's the kind of encouragement that Zechariah, through God, is trying to give to his people. So let's dive into that today. Let's look at a few different descriptions, because Alex was saying that we're in a series talking about God's kingdom, because that's the encouragement that God gives through Zechariah. They wanted to rebuild the kingdom, and they had their idea of what it should look like. And God said, I'm going to give you my vision for what the kingdom will look like. So let's look at it. The first thing that God describes when he's describing his kingdom is an overflowing kingdom. With everything going on with VBS, I will say I don't have notes or slides for you, so just listen to my voice. If you want to write it down, there's a spot on the bulletin. You can do that. We have pens in the pews, so I'll try to repeat things for you. But the first thing is God sees an overflowing kingdom. Look with me again at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what, its, and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst." Without a little bit of understanding here, this can seem a little confusing, right? Especially that beginning part. He sees a vision of a man who's running and trying to measure out the size of the city. That might not seem like a big thing, but it has a lot of significance for us today. See, in the vision, what this man was trying to do was he wanted to measure out what size Jerusalem was so that he could rebuild the wall just the way it was before. Okay, well, that doesn't seem like too big of a deal, except it is. See, God looks at him and says, no, stop that man. (laughs) That's not my plan for you. See, what these people, these original builders here, are wanting to do was they saw what Israel, what Jerusalem was like in the past, 
And they said, we've got to rebuild it exactly like it was before. Let's measure out this city, let's rebuild this wall, and let's get back to what we were before. Was anybody here last Sunday? (laughs) That ringing any bells? (laughs) Right? Alex talked last Sunday about the dangers of nostalgia, of not looking into the past. See, these people were so focused on this wall (laughs) that they had had before that that was their focus. And see, here's the problem, though. Walls have two major purposes for a city in those times. Those two purposes were this, to keep people out and to keep people in. Let's examine that in reverse order, though, okay? Let's start with keeping people in. See, that's a problem that they were wanting to face, and it's a problem that a lot of churches and places face today of having a walled-in mentality as a church, A lot of people know that before we moved back here to South Carolina, we lived in Raleigh, North Carolina for uh, almost 10 years, and I worked at a Christian school, uh, the one that I grew up in. It was awesome. I worked there um, and taught Bible and PE, for some reason, um, for eight years. I worked there, and I was very, very close to the administrator there. I'd known her my whole life, and they have this problem, just not on purpose. See, they want to grow. They're doing an amazing work of educating kids Um, for life and in the gospel of Jesus. But they're landlocked to the church that they share a property with. So every single year, once their enrollment hits a certain spot, they have to turn families away. And I know from experience how hard that is for her to have to look at a family that wants to send their kid to a Christian school and say, I'm sorry, but we don't have room for you this year. But that's from it not being their fault. They want more than anything to grow and build something new and bigger so that they could welcome as many students as they can. In church, I want to make sure that we don't fall into that problem on purpose. See, yes, we are a still, it doesn't look like it today, um, but we are a smaller church, right? But what can happen to a lot of older and smaller churches is they end up believing that they have to stay a smaller church. And they end up having a walled-in mindset. We would never say this. We would never say that we don't want more people to come in. But some things that we do, the mindsets that we have, the programs we do, might act otherwise. We need to make sure that the ways that we act is that we, like, if we could just tear down these walls in our mind, that'd be really expensive. But let's just imagine that we tear down these walls and let's live like we don't have walls, like we are in an old-school tent revival every single Sunday, and we want as many people to fill these pews as we can. You know what? If we have to move service into the gym, praise God for that. Let's welcome as many people as we can. We don't want to keep anybody out. Israel was saying, look, we had this plan, okay? We had us, because this is something they struggled with a lot. Israel said, we are God's chosen people. It's only for us. So God gave us this great city before, so let's rebuild this wall, and let's do it like we did before. And God's saying, no, 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 no. You can't even imagine the kind of growth I'm going to give to my kingdom. He said, your kingdom, this city, Jerusalem, is going to be overflowing with population and with animals and people. And we'll we'll save the spoiler for later. He talks about what kind of people are going to fill the city. But he said, stop acting like a small city. And so let's not act like a small church. Let's act like God's church. God wanted Israel to act like his people and to build his city, not their city. So let's not have a walled-in mentality. But a wall has another purpose for a city. The walls also keep people out. They were for protection, right? I think, didn't the kids learn about the wall of Jericho? 
in VBS this week, I think. Was that this week? No, they did. That might be another one. Doesn't matter. They've probably learned about the walls of Jericho before. That was the whole problem with getting into that city. There was a wall that was surrounding it. And so God had to topple that wall for them. And so that's what they were hoping for again. They were like, hey, we got to be safe, so let's rebuild the wall we had. Well, how much good did that wall do for them in the first place? (laughs) Not a lot. (laughs) They had already been defeated. Enemies had already breached that wall. So God tells them, why are you so worried about being protected by something you can build when I'm telling you I'm going to protect you? Don't miss what God's reminding them of here. He says, I will be a wall of fire around you, and I will be in your midst. This is something the kids learned this week, is when the Israelites were running away from Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea, and they're trapped. Pharaoh, Steve Bright, is chasing them, <laughs> right, all the way to the Red Sea, and they get stuck. And so all night long, the Bible says, God is letting the wind blow the waters apart. And think about that. We always, like in our minds, right, we always imagine the waters just parted immediately. No, the Bible says it took all night. And how terrifying that must have been for the Israelites. But don't miss what God did. God came down as a pillar of fire. I like to think of it as a giant fire tornado. And that sounds awesome, right? And it stood in between the armies of Egypt and Israel and protected them for that whole night. And God's saying to Israel, he's saying to these people trying to rebuild the city, stop trying to put your attention and your protection and your faith in a wall, in something you can build and something you can do, and put your trust in me. And church, that's what we need to do. Look, it's wonderful the facilities that we have here, right? It's a blessing. We have incredible things that we've built here. These could burn down any day, any day. The church that I served at before here, long, long ago, the original sanctuary that they'd had, they're about to celebrate their 250th anniversary, which is awesome. In their original sanctuary that housed countless sermons and salvations and baptisms, it caught on fire and it burned down. But did that stop that church? No. We can't put our faith in anything we do. We can't put our faith in any kind of person that we are. We try to tell you all the time, don't put your faith in me and Alex. We can and will eventually fail you or eventually we'll pass away. We can't put our faith in anything we do. VBS was awesome, right? But that's just something we did. If God's not in it, it's nothing. God said, don't make the city of Jerusalem your glory. This church isn't our glory. God is our glory. He said, I will be a wall of fire to protect you, and I will be in your midst. Church, may that be our prayer. May that be our goal. That's what we want this, city, this church to look like because that's what God's city is going to look like. So then we get the second thing that God says his city will look like. He said it will be an overflowing kingdom, but then next he says it will be a kingdom of refuge. Look with me again at verses 6 through 9. Verses 6 through 9. It says, up, up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So the message continues in these next verses with a call for the people to leave exile, for the people who hadn't yet come home yet. All the Israelites hadn't come back yet. And so he's reaching out to them and shouting to them, and I thought this was really cool. 
almost every commentator who studied this passage, when it says the words up, up, I just thought this was kind of funny, uh, uh, the literal best English translation we could give is God saying, come on. <laughs> That's the most accurate depiction of what he's actually saying there. He's saying, come on, look at what I'm doing. <laughs> look at what's happening here. You need to get back to what's going on in my city. But I want you to not miss, there's two groups of exiles that God is calling out to to return. And they're very fitting for people in the churches today. The first group he's telling are those who are probably too nervous or too afraid to come back and to trust God. I'm sure there were many Israelites who were still there living in those kingdoms, even though they didn't have to stay there, that were looking at the opposition that the Israelites were facing in Jerusalem, and they were like, "Mm, I'll go help after they've got things together a little bit. That looks really hard. That looks really scary. There's a lot of people that hate them. They could be attacked at any second, right? And they don't even have a wall. They don't have an army. If that happens, they're going to die. That seems really hard for me. But God assures them, again, of his protection. And he assures them of how much he loves them. And first off, he reminds them of why they were in exile in the first place. Don't miss when God said, hey, I'm the one, first off, that scattered you. It was a discipline, right? That was God's sovereign plan. And he's telling them, look, if I'm the one that sent you away in the first place, now I'm telling you it's safe to come home. And I want you to come back. And don't miss that like, wonderful picture he gives to them. He says, anyone that touches you, anyone now that comes and attacks you, they have to face me because they're messing with the apple of my eye. It's a beautiful phrase that God says, right? He's saying of his children, and note here, remember, in this particular point, he's talking to the people who hadn't come back yet. (laughs) Don't miss that. He's saying even his children who were too afraid to come home. He says, I love you that much. That's why I want you to come home. You can trust me. I'm going to be there for you. I love you. You are my special people. I love you. I'm going to protect you. And I love the image he gives. Did you catch that? When he says about the enemies, he says, I will shake my hands over them. I thought this was cool. The other thing is, don't overthink that. It's literally as if someone is dismissing something that they think is gross. It gives the image of God doing this. He looks at the enemies and goes, be gone. <laughs> get, out. get out. Go. And if God isn't worried about his people, should we be worried? No. See, is it going to be easy to rebuild something new? No. Alex, is it easy to rebuild a church? (laughs) No. People who've been members here since before I was born, is it easy? There's some of you. Is it easy to rebuild a church? No. It's scary. It's hard work. But we can't let that hold us back from getting involved. And if there's something that's been holding us back, If it's been fear or anxiety or worry, let's remember that if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, then you are the apple of God's eye. And he is not looking at you saying, wow, you've been useless all this time. There's definitely nothing you can do now. He's saying, no, I love you. And come on, (laughs) come get involved in what's happening here. He wants to do that for you. But there's that second group as well. He says, to you people who are there with the daughters of Babylon, And the image that this gives is these aren't the people that are too afraid to come back. These are the people who don't want to come back. These are the people who they were exiled to live with these wicked people in Babylon and Assyria. And then they got used to it. 
They started living and enjoying the sinful lifestyle that these people were living in. And now that it's time that, or that they could come home, they're like, I don't know. This Babylon and Syrian lifestyle is kind of nice. I'm used to these sins. Or it could be the flip side, and they say, I am so sinful, there's no way I could go back to live with God. There's no way I could do that. There's no way he'll welcome me back. You know the things I've done throughout these years? There's no way God still loves me. But notice the cry of protection and love and the claim to be the apple of God's eye was given to both groups. If there's someone in here today or you know somebody who's been too nervous to come back and get involved in a church, whether it's this church or your home church or any church, or to come and bring your life back under God's um, control because you think you're too sinful or you've been too comfortable living in a lifestyle of sin, don't hear me hear God's word to you this morning. God's saying to you, come on, come back to me. You are still the apple of my eye. He still loves you and he welcomes you back. The city of God is not something that keeps people out, is not something that throws condemnation on sinners. It's a refuge for sinners. Amen? And that's what this church needs to be. We need to be a place that when someone knows that they're in sin, they know that they can walk in these doors and find love. Because listen, church, God loves us where we are, but he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to come to him. And so if that's you or someone you know, let this church be a refuge. Let God's church be a refuge for you. So God's vision for his kingdom is an overflowing kingdom. It's a kingdom of refuge. But then we get to what the title of this sermon is all about. It is a kingdom of nations. Look with me at the final verses here in verses 10 through 13. It says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling." This is the final picture that God gives of His kingdom. And it's a beautiful one, isn't it? Because it's not one where everyone just looks the same. You want to know the other reason I love that we had kids get up here and sing? Way too often we just have adults up here and sing. We're not the only ones blessed with worshiping God through song. Let's get anybody up here. And these kids looked all different. There's all kinds of people in here in the church this morning. There's all kinds of people filling the pews and the seats of the churches here in Easley and in Pickens County this morning, and that's what God wants. Amen? God didn't come just for Israel. Don't miss that. They were His special people, but listen, from the very beginning, God told them it's not just you. The very forefather of the Israelites, Abraham, when God was giving him the first promises, He said, and Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It was never just supposed to be Israel. And praise God for that, because maybe some of you do, but I don't got Jewish blood in me. (laughs) Praise God that it opened up to everybody. And don't miss that. I love that there were probably some Jews that read this back then. They might have skipped to that last part of verse 12 and got real excited when it says, and God will again choose Jerusalem. And they were like, yeah, of course he will. 
But they miss that part of what's got to happen first before God chooses Israel again or chooses Jerusalem again. He says, my city, my kingdom will be filled with all nations, all kinds of people, every color, every race, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every socioeconomic thing, every political party, every single type of person is going to fill his kingdom. And then he says, then I will choose Jerusalem. How do we become God's church when we become a church of all nations? Amen? It's not just for us. I tell this story a lot. I may have even told this story from this pulpit before, but I'll tell it again, of one of the most shameful moments I've had to be a part of in a church. It was in a church that I, the, uh, church that I grew up in, and we, it was a very, very kind of strict church, looking back on it. It was legalistic at times. And basically everybody there looked the same. Now, there were many wonderful people in that church. But like every church, we had problems. And I remember there was a Sunday morning. We were having our worship service. I was sitting up. We had a balcony, and I was sitting up in the balcony with the other teenagers. And we saw a guy come in. Looked about college age, right? And this was back when the whole gothic scene was a real big deal. Right, and he was very deep, heavy into that. He would like like full black combat boots, chains out of places, chains had no business being, right? All that kind of thing. Did not look at all like anyone that normally came to our church. And he walked in, and I remember I wasn't quite upstairs yet because I saw him come in because we all stared, right? And he walked in, and I think maybe the only person that said something to him was whoever was standing at the door. No one else spoke to him. He walked up to the other side of the balcony, sat by himself, listened to the sermon, got up, no one spoke to him, and he walked out. Never saw that guy again. We have no idea what brought him into the church walls that day, but none of us seemed to care enough, myself included. And I don't know what kind of opportunity we may have missed for that guy, because we were too weirded out that he looked different. That's not what God says a church is supposed to be. I don't care who walks through those doors. If they want to hear about Jesus, we're going to tell them about Jesus. That's what God's city is going to look like. And that's why Dylan read what he read. See, this was a call for them to build the Jerusalem to be like that. It's a call for us today to build a church that will look like that. Because if you don't like the things I've said, you're not going to like heaven. (laughs) Did you hear what Dylan read? He said that heaven is going to be filled with all nations, every tribe, every tongue, everyone, every type of person will be there worshiping God. And I can't wait. (laughs) We we, We sang all in English. Can you just imagine what it's like to hear all the different languages worshiping God together in their own tongue? That's what it's going to be like. And church, I want us to be a part of it. Here's what I want us to take away. What are some easy ways, or not easy necessarily, but ways for us to remember some application points, some things that we can do as we walk out of these doors? Zechariah made it really easy for me. He put it in three things, three commands that we're supposed to do. And they're straight from the passage. The first is this, flee from the wicked cities. If you want to be a part of what's happening here at George's Creek, or not just at our church, at whatever church you're a part of, 
then you need to flee from whatever is holding you back from getting involved there. Are you nervous? Are you looking at what's happening to other churches at the way the world is against us? And you say, that's going to be hard. Yeah, it is. Jesus said it would be hard. But we're supposed to get involved anyway. Or are you so comfortable or worried about the sinful lifestyle you're living in or you have in your past that you think you're too dirty for God? God says, come on. Flee from those sins. Come get involved. Don't let those hold you back from what He's doing here. And the second command is this. He says, sing for joy. Did you catch that in the passage? God tells the people, while you're making this city, when you realize that I love you, that I'm protecting you, that I'm in your midst, sing for joy. You want to know how we can get past the nervousness and anxiety? Is we remember who's on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? And nothing makes me want to shout for joy and sing for joy than for realizing that the all-powerful God of the universe is with us in this building right now. Amen? And he's not only with us, he loves us. And he empowers us to do the things that he's called us to do. That's why these kids got up here and sang. That's why more times than we can count, those kids all this past week shouted, God is good. If that doesn't get you going, if that doesn't make you want to sing for joy, I don't know what will. And the third thing is this. It's the very last verse. Be still. Notice what that last verse says again. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. Don't get this the wrong way. It does, I don't mean still by stop doing things. That's count, counteractive to what the passage is about. What it means is this. Let's listen to what God is doing. We need to be still, still our minds, be silent, shut our mouths from what our ideas are for what this church or this city or this nation, or what God's kingdom should be. Because if we're listening to what Jordan or Alex is saying, and it might be something different than what God's saying, then it's worthless. So let's be silent. Let's stop what our ideas are, and let's focus on what God's ideas are. Don't miss the power behind that. Does God have to get up for anything? No. (laughs) He's God. He's all-powerful. He doesn't have to do anything. But this says he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. In church, that's an exciting thing. That the God of all creation wants to get up, wants to move amongst you and me and build his kingdom. So let's be a part of it. Let's pray together. Father, we